Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This is the first of five interviews entitled The Vernacular Voices of the Storyteller. I met with five amazing storytellers to find out what they thought about breaking down barriers with stories and breaking down those same barriers with food. In these fractured times, I wanted to look at how stories from different voices can overcome the distance between people and highlight our shared experiences. And I hope the answers from these storytellers will help. This first interview is with Amy Douglas. And if you haven't heard of her before, you'll definitely want to hear more about her after this. Hello and welcome to Amy Douglas. Amy's the host of Taking the Tradition On, storytelling talk show and podcast, and Blast Storytelling Performance Club. She's also part of Get a Word in Edgeway Spoken Word Concerts. She was a founder member of both Tales at the Edge Storytelling Club and the well-renowned Festival at the Edge International Storytelling Festival. She served two years as director of the Society for Storytelling. Amy's been a devotee of the art of storytelling since she was 14, and Amy was awarded the first Westmoreland's Art Storytelling Apprenticeship in 1993. The first thing I really wanted to ask was what way do you think stories are universal for everybody? I know, obviously, you um, do a lot of stuff about your local area, about Shropshire and about that place. But what way do you think stories are universal for everybody? Well, stories are about people and, and people are pretty much the same wherever you are and whenever you are. And stories are, they're not about the fripperies at the edge of things. They're about life and birth and death they're about emotions they're about growing up they're about falling in love they're about what to do if the person you love doesn't love you they're about issues with your mother and your father and your children they're all of those kind of gnarly gritty difficult things that that we all have to deal with um they're universal because in lots of ways the human experience is universal the things that really bother us are are the same for everybody. Thank you. I think, yeah, that sort of reflects my experience as well. Um, I suppose having said that, I guess maybe you've probably answered my next question, um, but what way do you think stories break down barriers? Is it, do you think, because of those shared universal experiences? Um, well, I think so. And stories, you, you need to have a certain amount of empathy to get involved with stories. Um, and I know that there is a small amount of people that, that just don't have empathy, but they're very, they are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. And listening to stories is how you develop empathy. And when, for you to get into a story, for you to get involved with that and involved with the character, then you're, you have to walk alongside them. You have to be with them. You have to care about them. And the thing about storytelling as well is that it's it's not acting there is no fourth wall so when you're telling a story you also have to be really involved with that character and that person you have to care about the story and it provides that link so you're also as a storyteller you have to make yourself vulnerable you you have you're sharing something of your heart when you tell a story and for a listener to really get involved in it, they have to open their heart and it's and that's when those two sides come together and the story makes a bridge between you. And every time you tell a story, it's different um, because the listener is always different. There's the time and the space. It, every time is a unique moment in time and place and everything else. And that story, you all come together and exist in that place. It has to be a shared experience. And that just automatically breaks barriers down. Um, and I think if you can meet in that, 
space, you start to understand the person who's telling the story and the person who's listening. Um, I mean, there's, there's a really well-known um, story probably have come across, but there's a, a fantastic storyteller in America called Dan Kedding. And there's a, a very short story that he tells that I, I think kind of he started telling it and it just sort of sped across the storytelling world really fast because it says something really intrinsic about about storytelling I mean it's it's the perfect answer to that question um so very briefly there are there is a, a great war and in that war there is a huge battle and it's the battle to end the war the two sides finally come together for one great clash on the battlefield and they begin fighting as the sun goes up and they fight through the day and warriors are just they're falling like corn it's that it's like a, a field being harvested and all the stalks of wheat all the men are just falling one by one by one by one and at the end of the day there are only two warriors standing one from each side and they are exhausted they can barely lift their swords and they're staggering in this fields amongst all of their fallen comrades and they look at each other and they decide that there is no dishonor in stopping that day and they decide that they will rest that night and they will decide the outcome of the battle in the morning and so they lie down in this bloodbath <laughs> and surprisingly even though they're both exhausted neither of them can sleep you know and they're both lying there staring up at the skies and staring up at the stars and one just says out into the night, at home, I have a son. And he plays with a wooden sword. And when he grows up, he says he wants to be just like me. And the silence. And then the other warrior says, well, I don't have a son, but I have a daughter. And when I look at her, I see my wife as she was when I first met her. And into the night and into the space, they start swapping stories of where they come from, of their homes and their families and the old men who play chess in the market square and the women who natter over their washing lines. And they talk all the way through the night. And in the morning, when the sun arises, the two of them get up. They buckle their sword belts back on. They draw the swords from out of their scabbards and then they look at each other. They put the swords back in the scabbards and they turn and they walk away in opposite directions because you can't hate somebody once you've heard their story. That was absolutely wonderful, thank you. You can sort of picture them and, and yeah, that what, what an amazing story. Thank you. I hadn't actually heard it. Um, and I wish I had that was such a lovely time to hear it. Thank you. Um, I think I'm not going to ask the next question, but I think you've just answered it really, which is it's why it's important that we hear different voices telling stories. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody has their own voice, don't they? And I think um, I think everybody has a need to be heard. And everybody hears something different in a story. And you can tell a story to a whole room full of people. Um, you have control over what you say. You have no control over what people hear. <laughs> so, everybody will engage in that story completely differently and they will take something different from it. They will have different pictures in their head. And when they go and they, when they tell that story, they'll be telling it from a different point of view. And they'll be putting a different strand and a different emphasis and they'll be passing on what it meant to them. And 
it is really important to have all of those different voices. I mean, the amount of times I've had stories come back to me and they've come back in such a different form and I see something in it I'd never seen before. And that's if it's just the same story. And then you get all of those different stories from different places and different times and you get this just wonderful tapestry of, of life. And, and stories have a way of coming to you at the time that you need them, I think, as well. Yeah, thank you. No, that 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 does. I think I completely agree with you. I think when I um, I'm very very new to storytelling, very new indeed. But when I tell stories, when I break down stories and then we put them together, I might read them first rather than maybe than hearing them. I sort of take that story and then build it back up. But I will build it back up with um, not a traditional story, but maybe taking that story and. Perhaps if there are things in it which are very difficult for now, especially the way women are treated, it isn't necessarily that I will change it to mean that the woman is treated differently, but I will change the perspective of that story. Or I will, if I can leave that part out and the story still stays whole, then I will do that. And I think that's just because for me, that's a really difficult, difficult issue. But I don't want to, you still want the story to be true. You still want to tell the, the story. And sometimes that part of that is, is something that happens. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely reflecting my experience. Um, really interesting one, that one though, because it's, I don't know, quite often I go back to stories and, you know, I think there's so many stories that we've lost because they've been kind of prettied up by people and kind of definitely yeah. all the collectors in that time, they decided that certain things weren't appropriate or, you know, yeah. Also, they weren't told certain stories, I think, because obviously the collectors would be kind of quite middle to upper class or quite posh people going out. And yeah. um, you'd have your, your general sort of, you know, peasants going, oh, well, can't, can't tell you that story because it's a bit rude. Um, so there's been that kind of cleansing. And actually, quite often, I think it's those difficult moments that are really important mm -hmm. and they need to be brought out into the open and they need to be talked about. Um, and that's that's one of the things that I'm interested in in exploring and I think one of the interesting things that we might be able to do in this online space a little bit as well is just there's a space for telling stories as performance and and just for entertainment and that is great and I do that and I do lots of that but I think that there's also a real place for not just putting stories out there because they're triggers I mean they're about like we said they're about the human experience there's so many things in there we need to talk about the difficult stuff as well but if you're going to do that there needs to be that space to talk and to question and yeah. to challenge. And I think that what we're not great at at the moment is providing those talking spaces and those reflective spaces and those supportive spaces. And that is, is part of storytelling. That's a, that's the other half of it. I mean, that's, it's, it's really intrinsic, I think, within the tradition. And I think that at the moment there's maybe too much emphasis on the, on the telling and not on the, on having that space yeah. afterwards which is yeah. one of the reasons that at blast we always have a really long break in the middle yeah. and why we have cake and why we have that kind of of space because i think it's really important that it is a community and that people have time to sort of mingle in that space and get to know each other a little bit but there's also time to talk about the stories and those yeah. conversations just really naturally happen and although i think that there is maybe more space online that we could make those times it's also more tricky because then you don't have that in-person kind of yeah. extending up talking to the person that you've been sat next to and having those those smaller conversations yeah and, and still sort of figuring out how to do that 
Yeah, I think some people maybe use the smaller like Zoom rooms, don't they? But I've been thrown into those before. And it's like, I like, I love chatting. Suddenly I'm against like four people I've never seen before, these faces. And you think, that was lovely. Oh, the story's nice. And then you sort of, you feel like you, 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 you can sometimes chat if you have somebody who maybe you've seen before or you can, or you feel particularly passionate, I think, maybe about the story. Then you let some of those inhibitions go. But I think it can be quite difficult in that sort of smaller space. Definitely. And you, you don't have the same spontaneity. No, no, you don't. But it is different kind of when you're in a room and you're milling and you can kind of just yeah. end up having a conversation with one person to... yeah to being thrown into room and going, now you're going to talk about the story. <laughs> okay. Okay, it's very it is. I think it's it sort of frightening. And usually it's not that long to talk as well. And I think that doesn't help. You sort of got your eye on the clock, whereas you don't have, if you're having a cup of tea and a cake and stuff, you sort of realise that everyone will drift back together naturally, normally. Yeah, you have that sort of much more natural in the sort of real life spaces, um, which you don't, a connection which you don't get so much online. But I think once you have, built a connection online I feel that connection is as valid as the connections you make in real life as well but it's just because obviously people come to a one-off event don't they they don't necessarily always come to the same things and you know well yeah you say that but I mean that's been one of the really interesting things about moving storytelling online is that the things that I go to actually are things that have developed a community and things that I go to regularly. It's much easier to go back to something and to kind of have a regular thing and know where the time is. And I, I've definitely found that with putting events on as well, that kind of having a regular thing, I do have a similar crowd and then and people will message each other on the text and they kind of um, are starting to know each other through that. I think it's much, yeah, going to those regular things is a totally different to one-off event. I think it's quite difficult to put a one-off event on and for people to remember it's on and to have the impetus to to come to it there's a much kind of bigger barrier bigger hurdle I think to to get over and come yeah. to that new thing um yeah I mean the things that I go to I mean I love Santa's oh, yeah. Goddess Club yes, and I've been trying yeah. to think about regularly um and I listen to Shona Lee at six o'clock every night and that's we just arrange our day around it now so that's when we have our tea and we all sit down we all listen to Shona Lee together <laughs> at six o'clock every night and that's um and and again, you know, kind of, I know most of the people now that, that go to that, which I didn't necessarily yeah. at the beginning. And yeah. so there, there's been a community build up around that. And I think there's just been a desperate need yeah. for community. We're all stuck here in our houses on our own. And I know that's starting to, to loosen up. But but I think that people have really been yeah. searching for that as well. And that storytelling has been a really good place to find it. Our next question is slightly different. Um, and I know that hopefully... Um, this is something I think you'll have lots to talk about because I know from your sort of storytelling tradition. Um, but what do you think stories tell us about place? Um, it depends what story it is <laughs> and what place it is. <laughs> they all say something different, don't they? Um, but I do think that connection to to place and landscape is really important. And I mean, it does depend on the, on the culture. Um, it's not necessarily the same for everybody. I've got a... A really good friend who's Jewish, so Shane Lee, who's really part big big part of that Jewish tradition and is a an amazing tradition bearer who knows thousands of stories. Um, and for her, it's a whole different thing. Uh, the stories revolve around people and generations in key moments because they're a traveling people, you know, because they've had to pack up and move so many times. She has a different relationship with that, but she still does tell stories about place and she's still interested in connecting 
to places. But for me, the traditions that I've been involved in are are really key about about landscape and place. And when I go somewhere, you want to meet the people in that place. But I also want to make a connection with the actual space, with the land. And I I do feel that we're in a living world um, and that all the flora and the flora and the rocks. I mean, that's, it, it's our environment. It's our place. Every place has its own atmosphere, its own personality. And the way of connecting with that for me is through story and the stories of that place and walking that place and learning those stories in that place, telling the stories back to the land, which then absolutely influences how you think about those stories, how you, the language that you use, the atmosphere that you conjure during that stories and those stories. And that's, just an ongoing conversation through me that you have with people and and the land and it's when you have a community that's lived in a place for a long time I think that conversation goes back and forward all the time um so Shropshire is is very rural and it's um it's kind of quite static community there's obviously always been people coming in and out and and where I live is right on the Welsh border so there's also been quite a lot of of fighting and movement down the generations because of that kind of border nature of it but in some ways I think that that makes it even an even stronger connection with the land I think when you live on a border people are more aware of who they are and more aware of their culture and their stories because they've got that reflection that is always there that they kind of you know making a point of who they are they they think about it because of the border and the difference um the other place I tell a lot of stories from is Scotland um, because I studied with Duncan Williamson, who was a Scottish traveller. Um, and the Scottish travellers are uh, a little bit like gypsies in their lifestyle, but they are a different race. So the Scottish travellers say they are the first people of Scotland. They are the indigenous people of Scotland and that they are descended from people who would move with the seasons and where the food was and would have been a nomadic people. And then as different races have come in and claimed land and built dwellings and stone walls and all the rest of it, then they've kept traveling and they still travel to where the work is and where the food is so that um, they would be traveling with the seasons. You'd have your farms with the crops, but obviously different crops need extra help at different times. So you might be helping with the hot picking in one place and the plowing in another place. And then kind of all the travelers used to gather well, a lot of the travellers anyway used to gather together for, for the berry picking at Blair Gary in the summer. That was always kind of like a big a big party where everybody would come together. Um, and again, it's changed, you know, because life again has changed and obviously a lot of camping grounds are being yeah. shut down and they're supposed to be being on settled sites. And I really, really feel for travellers at the moment. I mean, COVID is just a disaster yeah. for travellers not being able to travel and being and being indoors. They live outdoors, you know, so they might be in caravans and they'll have these beautiful spaces, but but that's not the space that they live in. <laughs> they live outside. Um, so it's like no digression there. But anyway, so, so those are the travellers. Uh, but people think about travellers, I think, as moving in straight lines, and they don't do that. Um, the traditional way that you would, it, it, the, I think, way travellers would travel be is much more like the petals of a flower so they would normally come back to the same place every winter and you would have a place where you would overwinter um and then when the when the yellow's on the broom 
um, is the time to start traveling. So you spend the summer traveling, but you probably go somewhere that you've been before and you might not take quite the same route every year, but you would go to places that you knew that there would be work where you've established relationship with farmers, um, where you know kind of what crops people grow and where you're likely to get a good welcome and where you're not. Um, so, so then place becomes even more important because you're remembering those journeys. You've got all of the landmarks and you have the stories of the, of the times that you were there before to tell. And, but also the older stories of the land, because often you know, travellers are really family orientated. So you would usually have at least two generations and often three or four kind of travelling together. So that as you're travelling, You've also got the older generations pointing out this rock, this hill, this forest, this place. And some of them might be personal stories about, oh, there used to be, you know, the, the wife there was always like a really excellent cook. She baked the best apple pies, whatever. They were really kind to us or, you know, oh, God, don't ever go near there because they were just so stingy and miserly. But then you'll also get the, um, the stories of, well, you know, kind of that's where old Maggie lived in her cottage. And that's, you know, where um, where the first witch's bism went up into the silver birch trees. And this is why there were witch's bisms. And that's why they're called that. And um, and all, all the stories of, of place and sea and disaster and romance that are going back hundreds of years. So that you're navigating the country by story and memory. Um, and that's part, that's part of the map. You can't travel, you can't find your way without that, which is kind of how I just relate to my life, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I don't know about place, but I mean, that's how I find my, my place in, in, in time and my kind of, you know, my, my time span of my life and where I'm at. Um, is I, that's, I, that's how I live my life, is I kind of navigate by, by stories. So you have those stories that are, that you t that I tell, um, but I've also kind of got like an inner canon of stories that are the ones that have got me through certain times, um, and and I think that's the thing about hearing lots of stories as soon as you can is that then you've got them inside you for when you you need them. And it, there's been lots of stories that when I've heard them, I've gone, Oof, don't really get that, don't like it, don't know something about the story, Oof, don't like it. And then ten years on or twenty years on, you go, oh, okay. Now, now I know what that's about. Now I get it. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate that story now. And it's there yeah. when you need it. I think you get it. You, I think you also get levels in the same way that you maybe do like with films. So if you watch a film when you're 20 and you might enjoy it, I think that's a nice film. Or you go and see a play and you think oh, I like that. That was nice, but it doesn't really get you. And then you you hear it again 20 years later, or you watch it again 20 years later, and it resounds within you like it was written for you, because you're waiting for that story. Because I look at a lot of fairy tales and, and folk tales that are widely known when on my podcast. I might put a twist in and I might change them a little, but they are, I'm not changing them dramatically to, they're just, I'm changing them from my perspective, maybe. But those fairy tales, people know about them, but they might have listened to them differently when they were 12 or 10 or 8. But they hear them again as an adult, they hear all these different, and like you said, the darkness and some of the those themes that they didn't hear when they were little, because they don't, you don't perceive things the same way. And I think fairy tales particularly like that, there's so many dark, really dark themes in them, but you just don't hear those themes when you're not old enough to understand them. I think one of the great things about that as well is that, yeah, you don't hear them. If you're not ready for them, quite often you don't hear them. So stories that I find really disturbing as an adult, I didn't as a child. And, and I think people maybe 
it's interesting, isn't it? The, the stories that we tell children um, and not necessarily that I tell, but you know, the stories that are, the, are seen as the canon of, of stories to tell children. If you try to tell Red Riding Hood without it having been around for so many years, if that was brought as a new story, go, yeah, yeah, we're going to ha have this as like a series of five-year-olds, people would look at you as if you were insane. You know, it's kind of like, why, why would you think of telling that story to, to children? Um, but, but children need that darkness and, um, and they... They won't hear it as being really dark until they, unless they're the, the child that needs that. Um, and they'll get it later on when they need it. I mean, and children love dark stories, but they will just get the bits. They'll hear the bits that they need and they'll, they're quite able to just like, um, just ignore the rest. And I, I certainly remember stories that I listened to when I was a child that I just thought were really mysterious and magical. And I quite liked that I didn't really yeah. understand them. And in some ways, some of those stories were quite disappointing when I went back to them and I was older and I understood them and some some just gained yeah. in levels and layers um <laughs> but yeah I think think giving people as many stories as possible as early on is really good and then you you do yes. find what you need and it's interesting that we were, we were talking before as well about the things that are difficult in stories and whether you should tell that or not um one of those stories that I don't really tell is mother holler um and those sort of stories you know where you've got the good child who always does what she's told and you know and everything goes well for her and then you've got the the, the bad child who's really lazy and lies around and you know kind of and the mother is i think is equally bad to both of them really <laughs> so she takes it out on the good child because it's that's her stepchild and it's not the whole kind of traditional fairy tale issue um, but her own child, she, she literally spoils rotten. I mean, the reason that the child is the way that she is is because of the way that her mother treats her. And I didn't, I don't really like those kind of stories. Um, and I feel sorry for both children and it just seems really <laughs> dysfunctional. <laughs> um, but I got really ill a couple of years ago um, to the point where I, I couldn't do the stuff that I normally do. And that whole thing of kind of wanting to be the good child, wanting to be the good mother, wanting to do all the things that I'm supposed to do to look after the people that I have responsibilities for and being forced to kind of lie on the sofa and not really know what was wrong and all of those kind of issues about being lazy and not taking up your responsibilities. I mean, it, that it just became a real story that was kind of my helpmate through those times and that I kind of was working with and, um, and coming to terms with where I was at. And it was really important for me to have that story, even if I never tell it to, to anybody else. And, and then that was a really interesting thing for me, going, well, I, this, that's not a story I would normally pass on because there's so many things that I don't like, but it's those difficult themes that I now need that are really helping yeah. me through this time. But I'm still not quite yeah. sure how I would tell that and what situations I would tell it in, but I now know it's yes. really important to tell it. <laughs> I found the one of that the, in that sort of theme of stories, and I have told it, and it's the three um, heads in a well. And actually, mm -hmm. there's a good ending for both girls <laughs> in the way that the one ends up. She has a horrible experience, but actually gets married to the right. She is married to the right ending. That's another whole other story. But in the fairy tale world, marriage is where you're headed. 
but she ends up getting married to somebody who's very kind and looks after her and helps her. And actually, and then the other one marries the prince because, you know, it's a fairy story, so someone's going to... But at least in that one, the mother is the person that's the problem and is clearly the person in the problem. Whereas I feel that, like you said, that the, the, it's always the daughter, the bad daughter, the lazy daughter, you know, the ugly daughter, who is the one that's... And I find the same. I thought I really struggled with those stories. But that hello, said as a cat, apparently as well. <laughs> it's not his favourite. Um, so yeah, I think it's yeah, but yeah, you said it is equally important for those stories to still be told, for that to still happen, you know. Um, they're not they can't go away because they have something to say. But equally, like you said, uh, well, there's a reason yeah. that they've survived as long yeah. as they have. And that's the thing, is this 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 the straight sort of linear narrative that uh, with what is happening on the surface. And then there is that that level where you're just working with with archetype and stereotype and kind of your own, um, you know, workings of your mind and kind of and how you choose to see things being represented. And I mean, going back to landscape stories is I also struggle a lot with those with those marriage stories. But at the same time, I think a lot of the stories that we have um you know, it, there's also that whole thing about the health of the land being associated with the health of the king and the health of the royal family. So, yes, somebody does have to marry the prince. And you do have to have that somebody to be a capable, kind, compassionate, intelligent person, because that that partnership and the male and the feminine combined is responsible for the health of the whole of the land. And so it's not just that that personal yeah. story of the girl and it's not just that marriage is the end yeah. destination um and a lot I mean I I do a lot of work with fairy stories and land stories and often there's that thing as well you know kind of the there's that old view of marriage as a, as a contract mm. and how you bring nations together and families mm. together and an awful lot of those partnerships between fairies and and mortals it's part of a bigger contract between two peoples and between how how humans live on the land and how humans interact with the land and so you're not just talking necessarily about two people but about how our whole relationship with the world around us um and that's you know kind of more obvious I think people are more more aware of those stories maybe in kind of mythology and kind of everybody's most people are quite familiar I think in in Britain certainly with Greek mythology and so everybody's really happy when you hear that story about Persephone to kind of look at it from that point of view and this is how the seasons came and you have the six months of winter and the six months of spring but those themes are come through in a lot of stories and a lot of traditions and again it's so Mm. it's, it's looking at those those levels and so yes you might not like it as the kind of well that shouldn't happen to that girl and that's terribly unfair but in a bigger yeah. picture, it can yeah. make sense and be and be really yes. important. And how you marry those those different levels in the story together, that's one of the interesting and challenging yes. parts of being a storyteller. <laughs> I read something recently, it was a, a, as part of an overall novel, but the, the theme in it, it was fantastic. Some, somebody essentially was going to take over a kingdom. The, king, the, the previous king had been a terrible, evil king and had wrecked the land and wrecked the people. And they said, this man, he seems, he was actually a commander from another thing, but he'd been cut off from his own people. And they said, oh no, you can be king. We want you to be king but only if you'll take this right with the land. And he didn't really believe in it. He said, yeah, that's fine, I'll do it. And he took the right with the land. But actually, once he had that, he could feel the land just in the back of his head, just in that back. So if the land was sick, he would feel sick. 
And if the land was well, he would feel well. And so it was that right that tied him to the land was actually what ensured the health of the country. And they said that nobody could then be king because they just let it go. But after that, nobody could be king again unless or queen again, unless they would take that right with the land. Yeah, and it's not spelled out so much, I suppose, in stories, but that is again and again. And that's why you have so many uh, stories about kings and, and, and the land being in trouble and those diff- difficult stories because they're absolutely yeah. the same thing. Certainly in, in fairy lore, I mean, and, and fairy tales and yeah. wonder tales, the health of the king is so intrinsically connected yeah. with the health of the land and his behaviour as to kind of that yeah. whole balance between nature yeah, and people yeah. so it's a yeah it's such a fascinating thing i think also the marriage thing is because pre-medieval especially in this country but pre-medieval and pre-christianity being widely the sort of adopted religion of the country people didn't get married and it wasn't because they didn't join up together and have children together it's because they didn't really have especially on poorer people didn't have properties only wealthy people got married because it was all about property it was all about contract it was all about how it, people would inherit but if you didn't have property there was no point because if you didn't have anything, there was no point in having a physical contract because you would have a not you would have some sort of you would have a right or you would have a a, a, a joining, but it wouldn't be a legal contract because there would be no need for one. Absolutely, and if you don't yeah. have property and if you don't have land and if you're not living yeah. within walls as well, you yeah. live as a community and you have to live as part of no. a community because you can't live on your own. Um, you have to work together as a community and children are shared property of the community you know everybody has a responsibility towards the children and yes you have your individual parents but but the 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 task of of raising those children is everybody all together and so again it's kind of you don't need to be married for that it's not like you know your partner's going to leave you in the lurch and you've got to bring up this child on your own because that that just is an absolutely yeah, alien concept. Yeah. The question I'm asking, the reason I'm, in a way I'm asking this question was um, I had read a, a, several different articles and it was actually talking about asylum seekers and refugees. And what they were talking about is essentially they have a story and their story is really important, but it has become this very performative thing in our current world, personal narratives get pushed to the front. So you hear and attach it to a person rather than seeing that as a people or just a little bit of background of where the questions come from. And I sort of want to know what, what you think storytelling achieves that sharing of personal narratives doesn't. Well, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think both of them have their place and both are really important. Traditional story. Um, well, I suppose before you were talking about individual voices and individuals' perspectives, and my kind of view of both these questions are a little bit the same, is that if you go to a beach, um, it will be full, you know, a pebble beach is full of pebbles, and each one of those pebbles is completely different and unique. And they've also been washed by the sea. And the traditional stories, you'll pick it up and it's this perfectly rounded, smooth pebble that will fit in the palm of your hand and feel beautifully comfortable and finished. And it's all of those voices that have told that story, that have molded it and shaped it, rolled off all of the sharp edges, and you just got this beautiful kernel of that that is necessary that is left the real heart of the story and when you tell a story like that um not only will the story help you to tell it because it's it's 
it's an oral story. It's designed to be remembered and told. And it, it there's something about it that that needs to be passed on. So that story will carry you, even if you're not um, a rehearsed performance storyteller. Um, even if you're new, that story will will help you tell it. And those stories, like we were saying before, you don't necessarily know what you're passing on when you pass that story. You might be telling it for one reason, but that's not necessarily what somebody else will hear. Somebody else will hear something else that is in it and a different person will hear something else and everybody will get something slightly different from that and they'll hear the different levels in that as they need it. And again, as we were talking about, you might tell that story at one point in your life and as you go on, you'll find other things within it and other meanings and other reasons that it's important to you. You don't know those when you first pick up that stone, when you first have that story. But it's all been packed up by all of those people that have told it before you, that have have made it into this this perfect and beautiful creation. Personal narrative is really important because that is your story. That's what's happened to you. And and you need to be recognised as an individual person and you need to have your story heard and you need to be acknowledged for what you've borne witness to and what you've had to go through. Mm. But it is an individual story and a traditional story is a people's story. It's not just one person's. There's so many different people's experience that has gone into that. And it does make them more universal. And mm. I, I mean, I love the balance of having both together of kind of traditional story and then the kind of personal narrative of why that story is important to you. But also when you're talking about asylum seekers, it's quite often those are really hard stories. They're difficult stories. They're not stories to be told for entertainment. <laughs> they're, they're stories that that really need to be to be heard yeah. they're stories that you know that that need to be worked through and that and that history needs to know about um but they're painful places a lot of the time and i and they can be very stark very bleak if you and you can talk about a lot of the same issues and you can experience a lot of the same shared empathy and and address things in an in a traditional story and it is a much safer space you can go into that world and you can tell somebody exactly how you feel through a story in a much less vulnerable way. You don't have to kind of slice yourself open in the, in the same way. You can talk as much or as little about it within that traditional story. And um, well, I was saying to you before, you know, kind of that's how I, I live my life is through story. I mean, that's how I... Um, how I think about what I'm going through and think about what's happening in my life it is, is navigated by story. Whenever I, I'd go and see Duncan, you know, I'd say, oh, how are you doing, Duncan? I'd say, oh, fine, fine, fine. And then he would sing a song or he'd tell a story and then I would know how he really was. And that's that's how we communicate. You know, that's how we really tell each other what's in our hearts. And it's, it's much easier to do that and actually offer much more explicit if you tell somebody a story to tell you how I feel, then if you actually go, well, this happened and this happened, this happened. Because when you tell a story, you're putting all of those levels of atmosphere and emotion and empathy and heartache or joy, or you pass so much on with that. It's just, it's almost being able to sort of step back and share some of your feelings and how you are, but without everybody being able to see straight into your heart and your how you you know your soul, because sometimes you don't want to expose that completely. But doing it through a story enables you to open up to an extent, but without having to make yourself quite so vulnerable. And and yeah, I think it's really important. I moving on to the next sort of section. Food does for me certainly does a similar thing. So you can talk about food history. I'm really passionate and interested in it. 
But through that, I can look at like my relationship with my nan because I can look at the history and where she's got things from. And she's sadly no longer with us. And she hasn't been with us since I was 12. She passed away, sadly. Um, but she loved food and food was everything in that kitchen and in that space. And my mum has inherited that thing through food. So for me, food is really attached to family. But equally, I love the stories of food from different countries. So that a lot of the cookbooks or the things I watch that are to do with food, they're actually to do with the stories about food from that place. It's all about the story. The food isn't just about what you eat. It nourishes you in the same way that a story nourishes your soul. But equally, it's also about, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, my nan's been making this for 100 years. It can be the fact that mum, my mum used to make caraway seed cake when I was little. And I smell caraway now and I'm instantly comfy and happy and just feel nice because caraway to me is comfort. It, it's just my mum has, my nan didn't teach her that recipe. It's not something she's been, you know, making through the family for years. It's just something she read about in a book and she made it for me when I was small. And now to me, that, smell is comfort and that cake if I have ever had caraway have caraway bread because I love this Lithuanian bread it's got caraway season and it gives me that same comfortable feeling it's tasty and delicious but so for me food is about stories hence why my podcast is a little bit niche but it's about both together um and so for me that's the sort of thing so I, I sort of go on to a bit of a couple of questions about food I've sort of said, I think, why I think sharing food helps strengthen bonds between people. Do you have any sort of similar experiences? Do you feel that, that, that that's, that's the case as well for you? Oh, it's so lovely listening to you talk about food. And I feel exactly the same. I mean, there's just so many stories for me about food. And it's the same. It's kind of, you know, and I like to cook things that remind me of people. And the, the things that stay with me are things that have come from other people and every time you make them it's kind of it's it's communing with that person when they're you know they might just live somewhere else or they might you know have, have, have died and moved on or you know whatever but it's kind of there's still that moment and um and what you said I absolutely agree with kind of food and stories go so well together because you're you're feeding somebody's physical being and their spiritual being at the same time it's it's food for the belly and food for the, the soul and that that encompassing nourishment is just essential. It's it's what we need as humans. Um, and I mean, and that comes into the stories themselves. I mean, it's it's a basic tenant, I think, of a lot of human, a lot of European stories is the fact that if you share bread and salt with somebody, then they, there is a bond, then you become family in that moment of breaking bread together and there are certain things then that you can't do or it's a real sin it's, it's just a terrible terrible thing if you break break that communion how many stories are there where kind of you know the young hero or jack sets off and his mother says do you want half a bannock with my blessing do you want a whole bannock with my curse and people just say that as patter but you know a lot of those stories as well are coming from a time like now kind of food is um the actual just just eating and being able to have enough to eat is something we take for granted. And I mean, those stories come from a time where that is not the case. And they come from a time when when all food is personal because you've grown it and you've milled it and then you've cooked it. You know, it kind of there's such a process to that. And if you're, you know, when she's asking her son that is, well, do you want to have half a bannock and leave me with something to eat? Do you want to take it all and leave me to starve? you know, kind of what sort of person are you? What sort of person are you going out in the world? What mindset are you going out into the world with? You know, and that's a real key 
question to the rest of the story. And we know, I mean, we know, oh yeah, you're kind of the good person's going to take half the bannock with a blessing and it's like, but I don't think, we don't often step back and really think about that and what that actually means. And then you've gone out into the world with this bag of food on your back and you meet some strange old woman. You have got enough food for maybe a couple of days and then you do not know where your next meal is coming from. You sit down and you share your food with that person. That is an extraordinary act of generosity. That again, I think it's just kind of, you know, it becomes patter sometimes in stories. But that is an amazing thing to do, to really acknowledge somebody else as a human being with, with needs. And kind of for that young hero to go out and to look and go, you're old, it's going to be harder for you to find food. I am young. I don't know where the next house is going to be, but actually I can work. I can find things. It will be easier for me to find food than you. Let's sit, let's eat. And to, to share that without any resentment or begrudging of, of handing it over as well. I think I would struggle to do that. <laughs> I don't like that about myself, but I think I would find it very difficult if I had a very limited amount of food to just sit and share it completely open-heartedly. Um, so, I mean, that's something that I really have been thinking about actually over the last the last year, because I've been listening to these tapes of, of, of Duncan, who I studied with. And when I met Duncan, I was a teenager and, you know, he was in his 60s um, and I've been listening to these tapes now mm. in my 40s and they're tapes from before I met him. So he was in his 40s as well. So it's this strange time travel where where we meet as peers and but and just sort of re-listening to some of those stories and some that I never heard and kind of really living in that world of Jack and and his mother and that whole kind of at the heart of all of those stories is the cycle of the seasons the heart of the, all of those stories is kind of really making a living from the land. And Jack's mother, I mean, it's interesting because Jack's kind of the, the, the traveller's hero, but he always comes from a settled family. Jack's mother is there. Usually Jack's father's not around, you know, so she's a, it's very, it's, it's a bit skirted over. She's a woman who um, has chosen to keep her child and to find some way of making a living, which is a really ridiculously hard thing to do. And she has found somewhere where she can make a living from the ground and from the land and the world around her, which is really hard. Every bit of everything is hard won to this point where she sends Jack out into the world. He's got all of that knowledge and all of that resistance and resilience um, and open heartedness to kind of pass that on. This just, you know, this incredible mother's blessing. I've maybe gone a little bit far from food here. Oh, no, no. I think it's but... all together. <laughs> well, it, kind of does, it definitely does for me. And then it's... You know, and kind of I have people like that in my life. I'm really lucky. My my grandparents, um, in my you know, my dad is the youngest of, of six and their house was the house where everybody came to, like all the waifs and the strays, kind of, <laughs> of four-legged, two-legged variety, whatever, you know, kind of it was the place where if you were a little bit odd, you know, it might end up, but all the kids <laughs> were in and out with their with their friends, you know, it was just open house really all of the time. But granddad would look after the garden which is absolutely a garden for food, you know, kind of he would work hard, but he would come home and he would, you know, there was this constant supply, seasonal supply as well of, of rhubarb and leeks and potatoes and onions and everything else, as much as they possibly could, would come from that garden. And then kind of all the recipes that my grandma would make as the as the seasons went by. So she'd have a, a um, 
sort of these leek suet pudding and corned beef pies and um, and rhubarb tarts and and all of that is so associated, you know, kind of her house had a very particular smell. And if I encounter that anywhere else, I'm instantly back in that kitchen. And um, I have to admit, things like leek suet pudding aren't things that I make terribly often. <laughs> but but like making her brand of of um, of chocolate cake, yeah. I'm back with her in her kitchen or stutter cake, you know, kind of to to the to every bit of like where where the oven was and the stotty pans and how things were stacked in the oven and the whole the whole experience and smell is instantly encapsulated in a in a very small moment. No, my last two questions now. Well, the thing, yeah, and the thing that I wanted to say to what well, this might fit into one of your questions, but I suppose that the answer <laughs> that I was going to give you instead of what I did give you about the food yeah. and sharing things was about blast really. So. Yeah, and that whole thing that you said about about sharing food and how it brings people together, I mean, that was a real strong thing that we wanted to do with Blast. And I think it is changing, but still an awful lot of yes. storytelling clubs are in pubs. Yes. And I really like that ours isn't. <laughs> and um, and to have a space but that feels friendly yeah. and welcoming that you can go to on your own. And actually, we do have quite a lot of them, um, particularly women who come on their own, who still, I would say some of them would not feel that confident walking into a pub on their own. And and part of that is, I mean, we do have alcohol. You can buy a bottle of beer if you want to, but most people don't. Our our club is definitely tea and cake. <laughs> and we... Um, and, and the way it works is, I mean, the, the door pays for the storyteller and the, the tea and cake pays for the room, but that's kind of a side issue because it's I think there's just a thing about homemade cake that is really important so it is always homemade me and Suzanne make it and um and we open half an hour before it starts and we have a long break in the middle so that you can sit and enjoy a cup of tea and a piece of cake and talk and share and have space to kind of think about the stories as well and for it to be a community and for me that's really important and it's a really important part about about our club and now it's moved online it's been quite interesting because obviously we can't make cake for other people at the moment but we've tried to kind of keep it so people are always invited to you know bring a cake for the break um it has it has expanded a little bit so there are now quite a lot of people who bring liquid cake <laughs> so, um but it's definitely part of the evening of kind of people sharing what they've brought to eat and what they're so that we're all kind of still eating at the same time and and doing that bit of sharing and talking about what we're eating and sometimes we'll have a recipe that's kind of the suggested recipe for the evening so we can all kind of cook the same thing and, yes. and say who's worked and who didn't work and <laughs> and particularly actually if they're really serious stories as yeah. well you need time to digest and actually sometimes kind of you can you can eat to feed yeah. one sister while you're digesting from the other and that they work quite yeah. well so you you know you digest your food while you're listening to the stories and then you kind of digest the stories while you're sharing food and I I think that kind of backwards and forward cycle is just a really healthy one and a really good one. My last question really I think I've, I've made it a bit more a difficult question than it needs to be but I think really it's just about stories of feeds really. I'll just give an example my, my nan um, used to go to the pictures sorry, to the cinema <laughs> and go to the cinema. And um, it used to be when the cinemas weren't, they're quite flat now, aren't they? But old cinemas used to be very steep. 
And she went to the cinema and she always used to have boxes of Maltesers. And so the box of Maltesers is what she had at the cinema. She didn't have it anywhere else and she loved it. And she went to the cinema and she was watching a scary film. And in the scary film, there's a big dramatic moment and the big, you know, the sort of when the, the crescendo of the music and then someone jumps out, she bounced like that in shock and horror. The Maltesers went that. And of course, after those moments, it's silent, isn't it? So all you could hear in the silence of this dramatic moment was my nan's Maltesers. So not only is she embarrassed because all you can hear is the Maltesers coming down the thing. She's also lost her Maltesers. She's like, that's the thing. That's, do you have, that's like my example. But do you have anything that sort of makes you, you know, it's like a, a either a dramatic moment or a funny moment or a thing where there's like a food that's associated with that? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I said, I do think about limpets and seal stories, <laughs> I suppose. Um, so I had this epic kind of trip with, um, with Duncan where, uh, he was teaching me to drive and kind of woke up one morning, went, right, Amy, we're going to Sky today and you're driving. If you can't drive by the time we get home, then you'll never learn. Um, so that's what we did, you know, so I spent a week driving to Sky and back. Um, but we ended up at one point um, in Sky on a on a pebbly beach and it was Sunday and the people that we would hope to stay with weren't in. And um, so we were just on the beach and we were going to be sleeping on the beach. Um, and we we had we had cigarettes. So that was fine because being with Duncan without tobacco would, would not have been fun. <laughs> um, but we didn't really have any food um, so we lit a fire on the beach and and Duncan said do you know how to catch limpets no <laughs> and he taught me how to stalk limpets um, and I still don't know <laughs> how genuine this was and how much he was just kind of winding me up but, but limpets you know obviously they're well known for like clinging really tightly to rocks but they can't hold on that tightly all the time. So if you want to eat them, you have to kind of sneak up on them and they will feel your shadow and they'll feel the vibration and they'll, then they'll clench up and they'll hold on tight. So he had me tiptoeing on this beach, which is quite hard to do on shale and pebbles um, with, a, with a rock, you know, to kind of sneak up, up and then knock them off the rocks. <laughs> and after after half an hour of this he had like a huge pile and I didn't have any <laughs> and then he cooked them obviously yeah. they, they come in their own yeah. containers because they're in shells so he sort of put them around the outside of the of the fire and cooked them like that and um and we 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 told seal stories and the seals came in to listen um so as the evening went on and it got dark and more and more seals came in at the bottom end of the beach um and the limpets tasted dreadful. <laughs> they are just like eating bits yeah. of like car tire. <laughs> but at the same time, they have that amazing just taste of the sea and the saltiness. And um, and so and I I ate quite a lot of seafood because I was just starting to eat fish again then. I mean, and Duncan was really for somebody who was kind of totally like a meat and potatoes man. He didn't really do vegetables, Duncan. And he didn't do he didn't do food that much really. I mean like one of his maxims was always I don't eat you know, I don't live to eat, I eat to live, you know, and he'd like to have a bacon sandwich and that keep him going all day. Um but he used to make a real effort to cook for me. And another thing that he used to make was um 
In fact, actually, I, I don't think I was eating fish at that, but the limpets was a, was a rarity because I wasn't even eating fish then. He made chowder for me and he took the fish out of the chowder um, to make it kind of nice for me. And then later on, when I started eating fish again, he kind of made fish chowder. And so those kind of those sea dishes, particularly chowder and limpets and and then mackerel cooked in um, in vinegar, um, that and kind of being at the beach and listening to seal stories is a real kind of all of that is really bound up altogether. It's not I don't know if it's exactly no. dramatic, <laughs> but um, but that is a real kind of when I think of, of Duncan, he told so many different sorts of stories, but this the seal stories and selkie stories are the are my kind of heart stories really I love those stories and yeah those the sitting on the on the beach with really simple food but really actually well cooked food um and sharing that that food and those stories is particularly special I think no, that's wonderful yeah that's exactly the sort of thing I meant I think people have food memories and not necessarily always the food necessarily isn't always necessarily the good part of the memory sometimes it's the memory because the food is so awful like the rest of the event is so wonderful and the food is just shocking <laughs> thankfully I have many of those but yeah the um but for some people, yeah, the, the memory of the food is the food is bad. So it, that that's like what makes the rest of the evening. Because I don't know, you were supposed to be cooking a chicken, and the chicken's like half raw or whatever, and you come out, and that's what you remember. And then you go out, and you go out instead of staying in, and you have this wonderful evening. But the chicken is bound in the, up in the memory because the, you know, <laughs> the bad chicken. I have to say, there, there was definitely an interesting reaction when I decided to have a go at making sprout <laughs> cake for blast. Um, and that is still talked about. <laughs> in a, in a, I was having far too many sprouts left after Christmas. So we had January, we had sprout cake. And it, it, it sold out quicker than any cake I've ever made because yes. people were really intrigued to try it. <laughs> Nobody bought more than one piece. I've not, <laughs> no, I've not tried. A, no, I can imagine. Well, it would taste really nice in the first moment. And then the bitterness of the sprouts would just hit the back of the throat. Where and that really was the end of the interview. I'd love to say thanks again to Amy for her time. It was such a wonderful um, opportunity to hear from such an experienced storyteller. No, if you want to hear more from Amy, she'll be doing Matlock storytelling so online on Friday the 3rd of September. Her fantastic interview series, Taking the Tradition On, starts again on the first Tuesday in October. Get a Word in Edgeways starts on the second Thursday in October. And Blast, her storytelling evening starts on the second Friday in October. And they'll be monthly then from then on. I'll put some links in the show notes for you as well. And I think that's the end of this bonus episode. Thanks for listening. If you've got any comments you'd like to make, please don't hesitate to go and find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm on at fairytalesfood. Or if you want to look at other episodes or you'd like to know a little bit more about the normal format of the storytelling podcast, then please go to my website, hestierskitchen.co.uk. That's www.hestierskitchen.co.uk. All of these links will be in the show notes. And thanks again for listening to folklore, food and fairy tales. Thank you.